Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn all about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. As a clinician, I focused on fertility and used Dutch testing to uncover the role that hormones play in a couple's ability to conceive. And now on the Dutch Podcast, I get to be joined by experts across functional medicine who will help us make sense of our body's hormones and take the guesswork out of treating hormone-related issues. Coming up on this week's episode, we will be talking about the menstrual cycle. Now, you might be surprised how many providers even call us to try to wrap their heads around one of the most intricate and amazing aspects of life and physiology, the menstrual cycle. Today, we're going to break it all down with Dr. Kelsey Stang, and we will leave you feeling so much more well-informed about what's happening in a woman's body each and every month. I want to introduce today's Dutch podcast guest. Kelsey Stang is a licensed naturopathic physician and is on the team at Dutch, helping clinicians just like you all the time figure out what to do with the Dutch reports. Now, I thought a real interesting note about Dr. Stang is she got her undergraduate degree in U.S. history, believe it or not, at UCSD, and took a course on the history of motherhood, which then turned her life in a completely different direction, bringing us here now. Kelsey also has a practice in Oregon, and Dr. Stang, we are so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Mm -hmm. So, we're going to talk about the menstrual cycle. And I mean, as a clinician working with fertility and women's health, you must get a lot of questions about the menstrual cycle just in general. A lot of questions and a lot of like emails or inquiry, like what is day one? When does day one start? Or like, you know, how long should my cycle be? Is this too long? Is this too short? So many nuances about the cycle for sure. Yeah. yeah, we don't talk enough to women about what normal is like when it comes to the menstrual cycle. I mean, you like get a class in middle school and that's pretty much it. Then you're like stuck with Google and that's the only yep. way. And who knows what you'll find in like a Reddit thread around like how many right. days you should bleed for and things like that. It's like not totally. great information out there. Even like friends or, you know, family members who have a particular experience with their cycle that think that that is normal. And then you start to pair to like what their experience is of like, this is what my cycle should be like. And if it's not, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, definitely. I've even seen patients in my practice that, you know, I've told this story on the podcast before, but I had one patient who'd come in. She was like later in life, you know, perimenopausal. And she came in for recurrent yeast infections because like her whole life, she'd been struggling with yeast infections that always happened mid-cycle and they weren't so irritating, but she got a ton of discharge. And as she's describing it to me, I was like, this is normal. This is just like mm-hmm. fertile mucus, you know, and she'd been using like ketoconazole like her whole life to try to treat this non-existent yeast infection. And, you know, I don't, it's not making fun of a woman in any way. It's just that we do such a poor job educating women around what normal looks like. Totally. And I see so much empowerment with patients when they start Mm. to understand and take note and, you know, really feel into what their cycle is. It's really, really awesome when they start to get it. So walk us through, like, how do you describe to a patient, like, what are the key phases of the menstrual cycle? Yeah. I mean, we can think about this in four phases or two phases, really. The more in-depth four-phase model would be we have menstruation, where we're bleeding, 
We have the follicular phase or the proliferative phase. We have ovulation, which is like the main event that happens in the middle of the cycle. We'll get into more detail on what happens with that. Um, And then we have the luteal or the secretory phase. And then the easier way to break those down is really just in those two sections, the follicular or the proliferative phase, and then the luteal or the secretory phase. And yeah, they're really like having the cycles, right? Like the follicular phase is going to be day one to day 14 of a like traditional 28-day cycle. And then we have day 15 to day 28. Again, very textbook. It's not always that perfect um, (laughs) of the luteal phase. (laughs) That might be part of the reason why we get so confused as we think 28 days is like what you have to have in order to be normal. So you said the um, follicular and proliferative phase. So why is it called like follicular and proliferative? What's happening during that time that that gets that name? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really doing both of those things. So within that first 14 days, we're really looking for the follicle and the ovary to start developing. So there's a lot of signaling from the brain to the ovary in terms of developing that one dominant follicle for ovulation. And then it's also the time where proliferation of the endometrial lining is happening, where the endometrial, the wall of the endometrial lining is starting to grow and thicken and become more ripe and hospitable to possibly implantation. So we have that follicle developing and the the proliferation of the endometrial lining. Okay. And so then ovulation occurs and that kind of switches things into what you call the luteal or the secretory phase. So what's going on there that those are called luteal or secretory? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first started learning these words, it was like, they felt so abstract, but when you break it down, like they're really very poignant as to what's happening. (laughs) So the luteal phase is where the corpus luteum which is sort of the, I think about it as like scar tissue or the residual tissue after ovulation. Once that follicle has been released from the ovary, the corpus luteum starts to secrete progesterone. So the luteum is active in terms of supporting the endometrial lining at that time. And it's secreting, that corpus luteum is secreting the progesterone to help maintain that endometrial lining, you know, supporting implantation and pregnancy, if that's the case. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in the ovaries, it sounds like the ovaries are primarily like really active in the first half of the cycle because it's like Mm -hmm. prepping the egg. And that is, I mean, that women usually start with like anywhere from like six to 15 follicles, right? Per cycle. Mm -hmm. And then those get kind of mature. I tell my patients it's like a beauty pageant. You Mm -hmm. have like a lot of contestants and Mm -hmm. then they have to go through like the talent competition and, you know, the little follicular swimsuit competition and all that stuff. <laughs> and then eventually you start to get towards like a semifinal and you really can see who's like leading mm-hmm. the race and they start to like really steal the spotlight, mm-hmm. that dominant follicle, right? Um, okay. So then ovulation occurs and then in the latter half in the ovaries, what you have going on is like progesterone being made, right? Yeah. And that's really maintaining the whole experience for that luteal phase. Progesterone has such an important role in the maintenance of the second half of the cycle. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are the key hormones that we really need to think about when we look at the menstrual cycle and when do they seem to have the most action? Yeah. This is the part that I find that is often lacking, if you will. We talk a lot about estrogen or progesterone, but really the cycle is dictated by hormones coming from the brain. (laughs) 
Yeah. So we give all the play to the reproductive cycle, but they're just like the actors. They're not the boss, right? Totally. Yeah. Okay. So the brain is really like the primary initiator for a lot of what's going to happen. And those two main hormones that are coming from the brain are the follicle stimulating hormone or FSH and the luteinizing hormone or LH. And FSH starts to rise really around day two or three. So during bleeding time, when the brain starts to, you know, signal to the ovary, to those granulosa cells to start to develop the dominant follicle. And um, it's actually the initial trigger from FSH for the dominant follicle happens at the end of the luteal phase in the previous cycle. And this might be a little confusing. But I love it because it really intertwines the looping of each cycle, one and the same. Like it's not just one cycle where you have the start and stop, but each cycle is really kind of leading into the next. So FSH gets a little bit of a pulse at the end of the luteal phase that starts to signal the development of that dominant follicle. So like this, this one's like in the semifinals coming into the championship, right? It starts to decide which beauty pageant follicle is going to be the next one for that particular cycle. And then it is on, go ahead. That's so interesting. Isn't it? And it's really on the day two or three that the spike of FSH starts to really develop more of those cellular changes happening within, within that dominant follicle to continue the development through the follicular phase of the cycle, that first Mm -hmm. half. Um, And, FSH also is what helps to stimulate the formation of LH receptors in the granulosa cells. So then when LH gets triggered, I'll explain how that happens in a second, the LH has somewhere to go once it comes from the brain in the granulosa cells to then have the big event of ovulation because LH is what's going to be triggering the release of that dominant follicle from the ovary. Okay, and step it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. What are the granulosa cells? Granulosa cells are like the little, the little like baby cells that are going to be the egg. They're like the, uh, okay, yeah, they're like the foundation of the egg cells. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, yeah, great question. And then, any other thing cool thing about FSH? So it spikes around day three. It's signaling that follicle stimulating hormone, or um, sorry, it's stimulating the development of that follicle within the ovary. And then it also intertwines with the messaging from LH. So LH um, starts to, mm, I want to take a step back. The other really important thing that FSH does is it, as that, as that um, follicle is starting to develop, it's triggering the development of the follicle. And within that, estrogen is starting to increase. Mm. So the dominant follicle is going to have more aromatase activity. It's going to start converting a whole lot more um, androgen precursors into estrogen, particularly estradiol. And it's that rise of estrogen, that big bump of estrogen, that's going to tell the brain to release LH. And when that luteinizing hormone is secreted from the brain, that's what goes to those receptors and it pops the little egg out. Hmm. One of the things that I think is so interesting, just to add to what you're saying, Mm -hmm. is like within the brain... The um, LH and FSH are made by the pituitary gland. So like one gland makes a ton of hormones, not just reproductive. It makes 
TSH and all this other right. stuff. But when it all comes from signaling uh, from the same hormone from a different part of the brain, the hypothalamus. Mm-hmm. So if you've heard like hypothalamus, pituitary, ovarian, or HPO or HPA axis when it's the adrenal gland at the end, it's the same like hypothalamus and pituitary that basically conduct the hormonal orchestra. And that's Brad, you know, that's like so cool that it's so cool, you know, the way the brain is able to differentiate what's happening in the body, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, estradiol going up and the brain is sensing it and then able to be like, all right, it's time to like, we're ready. Let's like time to party. Let's get that egg out. Um, just the intricacy of that is unbelievable. It's so, so unbelievable. I totally agree. And I always tell folks that the hormones, we often like to blame hormones for like what's happening in our body, <laughs> but hormones are really just the messaging signal. Like they're just delivering the message to then have mm-hmm. the effect on whatever tissue, like those, the hormone is sitting in as a receptor. Yep. Um, I often talk about them as like, like a sports team, like all the endocrine hormones, we really want to work together if we're, you know, trying to make plays happen. You can't have one hormone that's like really high or really dominant or it's going to steal the show and it might not work well with the rest of the team, but they all really need to communicate and know where their positions are (laughs) Mm -hmm. and make sure that they're working together. Yeah. That's cool. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we've talked about basically everything up into ovulation. So you Mm -hmm. get this big estrogen spike that comes when that one like dominant follicle is really kind of growing at the end of the first half of the cycle. Then you get ovulation and then you said it switches to that LH, mm-hmm. you know, that big LH surge. Now what happens hormonally? Yeah. So that LH surge is going to pop out that egg and then it's going to, you know, travel along the fallopian tube. But after that egg is released, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, what's left behind within those granulosa cells start to produce the corpus luteum. So a little yellow pigment called lutein starts to kind of coat the granulosa cells and it forms the corpus luteum, which is going to start secreting progesterone. Um, And progesterone, like I've also mentioned, is important at maintaining the lining of the uterus. So if we're going to have implantation, we want progesterone to help maintain that structure for implantation. Um, but it also is a really important um, um, hormone to, that decreases the biologic activity of estrogen within the endometrium. So we don't have, you know, estrogen dominance or just estrogen happening all month long. It kind of creates that perfect little balance for the cycle. Yeah, it's like our chill hormone, mm-hmm. right? And interestingly, that hypothalamus, like, it, the hypothalamus tells the pituitary whether to make FSH or LH by its frequency of pulsing. So it like releases hormones and pulses. Yep. And so when it's pulsing fast, there's a preference for LH. Mm-hmm. When it's pulsing more slowly, the pituitary knows to make FSH and progesterone slows the pulsing. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one thing that's kind of cool is it slows the pulsing in the brain so to get cool. the body to like not keep making more LH. And in fact, for women who have PCOS, one yeah. of the challenges is that there is like a genetic change that causes the brain to not to continue to pulse too quickly. And that's why women with PCOS sometimes see elevated LH. And if they don't ovulate, which is common in PCOS, you don't get that like chill out progesterone effect yeah. either, which makes it even worse. So kind of, I mean, it is like fine tuning, amazing 
hormonal dance. It's so cool. It's so beautiful, but it works. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Great. So any other hormones that are critical to talk about? So, you know, you have that progesterone. I mean, I guess, how do you end up menstruating? You know, if you have that progesterone Mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. So if there is implantation, then the little, you know, cells that are implanting are going to be secreting beta HCG. And that's going to tell the progesterone to stay around longer. So we don't have degradation of the progesterone. And then, you know, week seven or so, the placenta starts to make progesterone and it takes over for pregnancy. But if there's no implantation or no pregnancy, then progesterone is going to naturally decline. And as that declines, there's a signal for the endometrial lining to begin to shut. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings us back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, the full cycle. <laughs> So what are the things that women can notice that help them understand like where they're at in their cycle? And I guess this is like, if you're regular or irregular, can you see these signs? Totally. I mean, if you're regular and regular is a spectrum, I usually explain it as a spectrum of regular anyways, um, then we would expect a lot of the signs to be there. Irregular, you might have more irregular signs, right? More fluctuating Mm -hmm. signs throughout the month. Um, One of my favorite ways kind of funny piggybacking on your story that you shared about the cervical mucus is to monitor cervical mucus Um, because it can be, you know, such a great sign of estrogen levels, you know, helping to create more of that cervical mucus. And then when the cervical mucus is more copious, more, you know, changes in consistency, then that can signal more ovulation. And that would be more of like that egg white consistency, more of a thick cervical mucus. But even just observing vaginal moisture, right? If you have Mm. more lubrication, that can be a good sign of hormones fluctuating as they want to throughout the month. Yeah, I do feel like the word moist is a tough one to cope with. However, (laughs) um, I do think a lot of women don't know that changes in your moisture level are normal throughout a cycle. There's times where you're dry and times where you're not, and that can be a sign of where you're at. Totally. Totally. I mean, it's normal for like around when you're menstruating, obviously, there's going to be a particular type of discharge that we all know well. Um, And then after that, within the first part of the follicular phase, like let's say days five or seven to day nine, there's not very much moisture. And then around day nine, it typically starts to increase within how much is produced. And it really is going to peak around ovulation. And then it starts to, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, it starts to change to more of a viscous cervical mucus towards the luteal phase, thicker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when it comes to Dutch testing, of course, this is the Dutch podcast, we see a lot of practitioners who order Dutch testing for patients that have irregular cycles. Can you talk a little bit about the value that this adds to like the clinical picture? I mean, you've probably looked at thousands of these examples between your own practice and other practitioners who call in to get some help? Yeah. I mean, looking at hormones for irregular cycles, I think can be really insightful, especially if we can capture whether or not they're ovulating. And so that would be, you know, timing wise, we're trying to capture the Dutch test between days like five and 10 post ovulation or before the next menstrual cycle. Um, one of the ways that I often tell providers to check for that is to have the patients collect the samples when they want, 
or when they expect is their, you know, post ovulatory phase and then store them in the freezer until they get their next period so that they can really assess if that was their luteal phase, if they're really trying to capture that progesterone. Mm. If you do that for like four cycles and you haven't caught it yet, I usually just say send in the samples and let's see what's going on, right? Because there's not likely a cycle that's happening reliably enough to tell us that there's regular ovulation happening. Um, But I also often use a cycle map and I love this because it gives us the whole month's, you know, window of what the hormones are looking like. So patients will collect samples you know, every other day or so throughout the cycle, and then they get their hormones, the estrogen and progesterone, plotted on line graphs that are going to look just like, you know, hormones would in a textbook if we were to look at the fluctuation of estrogen and progesterone um, around the ovulation Mm. event. Those are really cool. So just to clarify, Mm -hmm. we kind of have like two types of Dutch testing. Mm -hmm. You have the Dutch complete and the Dutch plus, which are single day collection points. Mm -hmm. You collect multiple times in one day. And then we give you like a total for estrogen and progesterone levels plus androgens and cortisol and other things. But it's kind of a blend looking at like what you're excreting in 24 hours, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other one, the cycle map is like 11 plus samples over the course of an entire cycle. Mm -hmm. So you can see how things change over time. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And the cycle map, like to your question about irregular cycles, it can be great because it can capture the whole cycle. So we can see like, oh, the cycles are irregular because we're ovulating a little a little later than expected. Um, and then we know that we get that, you know, empowered information about what's happening in our bodies. Yeah, you can tell like ovulation date, you can tell whether mm-hmm. the hormones are high or low. And I've had circumstances because doing fertility work, I always start with serum testing for mm-hmm. people because that's what's in the literature and it's standard and it's insurance covered. So I'll oftentimes start with that, but I've had many, many experiences where I like base a treatment plan off of serum, but then I've also ordered a cycle map. And I find out that the day that I tested that hormone in serum, which is like day three or Mm -hmm. seven days post ovulation, it looks okay. Mm -hmm. But then all the days surrounding it, it's off, (laughs) you know, it's like not representative. And I think that's the challenge of that, like single snapshot versus being able to measure things multiple times over the course of a month. It's, it can sometimes be surprising. Totally. I had a similar case where um, the patient was checking her ovulation signal. Like she was very confident she was ovulating on day 14. Like all of her signs pointed there. And they weren't getting pregnant for a long time. And then we did a cycle map. And the cycle map, like, very clearly she was ovulating on day 19. (laughs) So they were just, like, totally missing the window. And then the next, literally the next month, now that they knew what timing they were working with, they were able to get pregnant. Gosh, it can be so easy when you have the right information. And that's interesting because sometimes that can be part of irregularity is that your signs don't necessarily line up with the timing of ovulation. Like... For example, you might have cervical mucus for like a really long period of time or not have any at all. And then you don't get that like preparatory signs that you're about to ovulate. Like there can be, even if the timing is normal, there can be irregularity in the signs Mm -hmm. around the symptoms. Or another reason I see that word a lot is like women who have certain symptoms that are timed with certain aspects of their cycle. We hear this all the time. Like I get really bad anxiety a week before my period or I get 
really bad breast tenderness mid-cycle or whatever those symptoms are that you always are noticing it's like the same time of your cycle, we can take a look either through the single day or the cycle map to see exactly what's happening hormonally that might be leading. Totally. Migraine headaches is another one, right? Something like menstrual migraines. I love checking in on hormones, either the cycle map or this, like there's the one day collection because it's so helpful to know yeah. where they're all flowing around. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. We love the Dutch test for cycle regulation. It gives you just so much information. Yep. It's great. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Kelsey, for kind of setting us straight on mm-hmm. what's happening during the menstrual cycle. It's definitely one of the most complicated processes in human physiology. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like this intricate dance that changes day to day. But, you know, just like women, we're beautiful and complex. <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> uh, so awesome. thank you for being here with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun. And yeah, it was great. And thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in today. Make sure you come back next week for more hormone education just like this. And if you're enjoying the Dutch podcast, help us spread the word. Comment and share it wherever you listen. Don't forget to also follow us at Dutch Test on Instagram and Facebook for news, education, and provider resources. And if you're a healthcare provider and you're struggling to find answers to your complex patient concerns, registering as a Dutch provider will give you the tools you need to profoundly change the lives of your patients. Dutch providers receive advanced hormone education, comprehensive test results, clinical support, and much more. Just visit DutchTest.com and click on Providers at the top of the page and we'll help you get started. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again next week.